Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Church, uh, good morning in person, in the greenhouse, online. Uh, Let's begin by praying together. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our only rock and only redeemer. Break up the hard ground of our hearts. Plant new seeds within us, Lord. Amen. Christopher West, a slightly cheesy but very helpful Catholic theologian who writes a lot about a theology of the body, uh, he likes to say that you can sum up the whole story of the Bible in five words. God wants to marry us. God wants to marry us, right? It's kind of cheesy, but the Bible does begin with a marriage between Adam and Eve, a marriage that St. Paul later tells us is actually meant to be a sign pointing to the kind of intimate relationship that we are made to have with God, the kind that God desires to have with each of us. And the Bible ends with a marriage between God and all of renewed creation. And in between is a story, not about religion or about rules, but a relationship that is the reason we exist. The relationship between God, our lover, and us, God's beloved. Our passage this morning from Jeremiah leans into this image or this analogy of the marital relationship between God and God's people, Israel. But it isn't a happy love story. In fact, our passage picks up at a point in the story when Israel, led astray by corrupt kings and power-hungry prophets, had abandoned Yahweh, their God, their lover, and they had turned to worship idols instead. And, you know, we might be tempted to think that idol worship is some kind of like weird ancient religious problem that we don't need to worry about today in our modern enlightened society, right? We might be tempted to think that. But uh, Drew actually did a great job a couple of weeks ago reminding us that, you know, worshiping idols is not just about bowing down to statues. No, anything that we give our worship to, including good things, more than God, that's an idol. Neil Gaiman, a famous fiction writer who, by the way, is not at all religious, gets this, I think. Um, In his novel, American Gods, uh, the story, the kind of premise of the book is that the old gods of Native Americans and American immigrants like Odin and the leprechauns are all worried because there's a new crop of gods in town that are making the old gods irrelevant. The new gods of media, TV, technology. And so there's a war between the old gods and the new. See, Gaiman actually understands that our relationship with many things in our society today is a relationship of worship. He understands that we still have sacrificial rituals where we sacrifice our time, our attention, our love to our phones, our TVs, to conspiracy theories, to the stock market. And there's one I think that he left out, though. Our dogs. I saw this ad in a magazine the other day, I'ms Who I Am. 
right? For that's, by the way, that is indeed a pun on the most sacred name of God in the Old Testament. But I have no ground on which to stand to condemn this because I am the person that this is being marketed to. So I stand, I stand condemned before you. But Neil Gaiman, I think he, he points out to us the fact that worship really can be understood as a combination of three things. Our love, we sing about this, attention and allegiance. Our love, attention, and allegiance. You know, anything that we love, that we focus on, that we're committed to more than God, that's an idol. You know, and it's, it's not that we can't love other things. We can and we should love other things. But the question is, what's at the top of our hierarchy? See, because that thing that's at the top is not only going to be the thing that we love the most, that has our strongest love, but that top love is going to shape and determine the order of all the loves beneath it. And that's worship. And seeing worship as this combination of love and of commitment, I think, helps us understand why the Bible uses this image of marriage to describe the relationship that we're called to with God. And it's why, on the other hand, the Bible also uses the image of adultery to describe idolatry. Now, to bring it back to Jeremiah, before we do anything else, I want to make clear that he is not saying that somehow women are more prone to infidelity than men. That is not true. That's not what he's saying. But in the ancient world, cities or communities were often personified in the feminine. That was the ancient practice. And so that's why Israel is frequently referred to in Scripture as God's bride. And that's why Jeremiah is using feminine language here to talk about Israel's unfaithfulness. But enough preamble, if you have your Bible, um, go ahead and open with me to Jeremiah chapter 3, starting in verse 19. Um, The interesting thing about this passage, as we look at it together, this particular prophecy from Jeremiah, is that it actually reads like a stage play. I mean, it's almost like a play like Romeo and Juliet. Uh, So if you can picture it, imagine a scene on a stage where, you know, under one spotlight on stage right, there's God. And Israel is under the other spotlight on stage left. The two lovers separated with darkness in between them. So use your imagination. Picture this. And we'll read through the passage. I'll give a sort of director's cut running commentary as we go through it together. So the scene begins in verse 19 with God's speech. And we get this incredibly intimate window into the very feelings of God. God says, how gladly would I treat you like my children and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of any nation. I thought you would call me father and not turn away from following me. But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you, Israel, have been unfaithful to me. God talks about his affection for us, for God's people not only in marital, but also in parental language. There's this, even this kind of longing in God's voice for what could have been a nation that loved God back, calling him father, being a faithful spouse. But that isn't what happened. Israel abandoned their God, and they rejected the covenant of their marriage together. Then we get a description of Israel, pan to the other side of the stage. 
A cry is heard on the barren heights, the weeping and pleading of the people of Israel because they have perverted their ways and have forgotten the Lord their God. It's a heartbreaking picture. You know, Israel left the God who loved them for pretend gods that seemed to promise so much. But in the end, these other would-be lovers abandoned them and simply left them empty. And now Israel has hit rock bottom. They're crying out in fear and in shame, and they realize all that they have thrown away. Maybe you're here today, and you feel that kind of pain. The pain of loss of relationship with a spouse, or a parent, or a friend, or God. I hope that you hear that there is room for your pain in God's story. And acknowledging this pain and this brokenness actually creates the possibility for light to break in. We actually have a lot to learn, I think, from 12-step programs, where the first step towards healing is admitting our powerlessness. But the pain is real. And part of what makes Israel's pain here so deep is that they assume that their opportunity to be in relationship with God is probably over. You know, they've abandoned their first love, broke God's heart. They've wed themselves to many others in God's place. And now they're abandoned and alone again. Is there even any hope of returning to their first love? You know, maybe some of us here today truly wonder if we might be too far gone for God to ever welcome us back. But it is into this honest place of pain and fear that a cry rings out from the other side of the stage, from Israel's true lover, from our God to us. Verse 22, return faithless people. I will cure you of backsliding. Return, God says, I want you back. There is no such thing as too far gone with God. We have a God who takes joy in forgiving sinners, in welcoming prodigals back home. God reaches out and takes the first step towards us that makes reconciliation possible. And God doesn't merely forgive. He heals. He cures. He not only takes away our guilt and our shame, God has the power to transform us, to make us new, to change our desires, to heal the harm that we have done to ourselves. I want you to hear this. The call to repent, that is to turn around and to turn away from idols and to go back to God. The call to repent is not a harsh command blasted from a pointed finger. The call to repent is not an angry picket sign yelling at you, turn or burn. No, the call to repent is the heartfelt cry of a determined lover who wants to have his beloved back in his arms. From the other side of the stage, Israel gives her immediate reply. Yes, we will come to you, for you are the Lord our God. God and Israel are talking again. And Israel declares that Yahweh, the Lord, truly is their God and their love. They're coming home. But just like with human relationships, simply saying, we'll come to you, 
is not enough. You know, there's more to repentance than simply saying, I'm sorry, or I'm back. There is hard work in repentance that is painful to go through. There's the pain of admitting our sin, and even the detox experience of having our heart retuned. But Israel doesn't stop there. They go on with a kind of liturgy of repentance that teaches us some things about idols and how to turn away from them. Listen to what repentance sounds like. Verse 23, Israel cries out, Surely the idolatrous commotion on the hills and the mountains, that was a deception. Surely in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. Israel starts by naming the truth that their idol worship was based in deception. That both as individuals and as a community, they have been caught up in religious self-delusion. They have become comfortable with lies, and they have rejected reality. And idol worship in Israel, at the time that Jeremiah lived, it took different forms. You know, there was the blatant, you know, worship of the gods Baal and Molech with, you know, debaucherous rituals on the hills and child sacrifice. Like, literally, these were things that were happening But there's also a sneakier and perhaps more deceptive form of idolatry too. And that was the idolatry of them wanting to worship both God and fill in the blank. Sure, they'd clean up appearances and they'd start performing the right rituals in the Jewish temple. But then the next day, they'd be visiting the pagan shrines and they'd see no problem with it. They wanted their relationship with God to be an open relationship. Meanwhile, popular celebrity preachers, more popular than Jeremiah, turned the other way, and they told people what they wanted to hear. You're great people. Everything is going to be great. Only Jeremiah had the courage to tell them the truth. The truth that combining worship of God with worship of anything else is not worship of God at all. As Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. Only one love can exist at the top of the hierarchy. And to think that we can reap all the benefits of a relationship with God while really giving our love somewhere else is a lie. It's a delusion. And it takes more shapes than just trying to worship both God and Baal. It also looks like trying to worship both God and money, or God and personal autonomy, God and power, God and any politician, political party, or ideology, God and country. I think that one of the most widespread and dangerous forms of idolatry that has crept into the American church today is this attempt to try to worship both God and and country, or party, or politician. We saw an extreme example of this with crosses and Jesus signs being carried with a violent mob into the Capitol building a couple of weeks ago. But we've also seen more subtle ways that this has happened with people calling out that violence as an act of desecration. You know, even this last week, in the inauguration, there were multiple references to the Capitol as sacred place hallowed ground, even called a temple. Hear the religious language. 
Let us not deceive ourselves. All of this is idolatry. And it's not exclusive to the right or the left. This is a particular idolatry that is called Christian nationalism. And I commend to you the statement that our church leadership sent out about this very thing a couple of weeks ago. Um, I commend it to you to to read more about it, to learn more about what this looks like. And if you um, don't have it or need access to it, reach out to, to one of us on staff. And I don't have time to go into lots of detail about this this morning, but I do think it is helpful to clarify, and I want you to hear me say this, that Christian nationalism is not necessarily the same thing as patriotism, right? Patriotism in and of itself, that is having love for your country, wanting the best for your country, um, you know, that's a good thing. As long as that love is subordinated to the love of God. And the difference between it and Christian nationalism is that patriotism recognizes that the love for country is a different, it is a separate love than the love for God. Christian nationalism, on the other hand, confuses the two and thinks that love for God and love for country are one and the same. Patriotism recognizes that there may be times when these allegiances come into conflict. And when that happens, love for God wins every single time. Christian nationalism, on the other hand, doesn't believe that there ever even could be a conflict because it over-identifies the purposes of God in the world with a particular vision of America. And whenever we confuse the worship of God with the worship of country or party or ideology, we're engaging in idolatry. Whenever we over-identify God's story with the story of one particular nation, That is idolatry. Now, Israel was a nation formed by God to bring salvation into the world. But America is not Israel. That is not a biblical idea. America is not Israel. Because with the coming of Christ and the pouring out of his spirit upon people of every tribe and nation and tongue, the church is now the vehicle through which God's loving purposes are being extended to the world. The global, the multinational, the multi-generational, the multi-ethnic church of Jesus Christ. But this kind of idolatry, you know, any kind, that takes the form of trying to worship both God and fill in the blank. It can be hard to spot right? Because it's the kind that exists in the lives of good Christians, people that go to church every Sunday. You know, it can be hard to spot in our own hearts because the scary thing about deception and self-deception is we usually don't even know when it is that we are being deceived. So how do we know if this is something that we've fallen into? You know, it's not enough to just look at what we say we believe. We have to look at our lives. You know, remember before, our definition of worship is whatever rules my love, my attention, and my allegiance. So ask yourself the question, what is my most foundational love? You know, what pulls my heart and my actions after it 
more than anything else? What pulls rank on my attention? What do I set before my eyes and my ears the most? Is it God? What do I give my loyalty and my allegiance and my commitment to more than anything else? Is it God? One image that has helped me wrestle with this personally the past couple of weeks comes from Eugene Peterson. Um, and he says, you know, imagine that you're in a fancy restaurant seated across the table with somebody that you care deeply about. You know, and the, the lights are dim. Everything else is fading into the background. And you're engaged in intimate conversation with the person at the table with you. You know, and occasionally the waiter will come up and you'll ask for things from the waiter and maybe say thank you. But then you're back focused on the person across from you. And the question that Eugene Peterson says that we need to ask is, is God the person across from you at the table? Or is God the waiter? Is God someone that we will occasionally ask for things from? Say, maybe even say thank you to before our attention turns back to what we really care about, something else, usually myself? Or is God truly our lover? I know I've been convicted a lot this week as I've wrestled with this, um, you know, because God often does, I think, get the leftovers of my love and allegiance and attention. You know, I've been aware in particular lately of how much I idolize having time to myself that belongs to me and nobody else that I can do whatever I want with it. But me and Lena have a little human on the way in a few months so I'm pretty sure I'm about to get rocked um, on that front. That's not going to be the case anymore. But the thing is, and this is important, God is better. God is better than the things that we might be tempted to worship. Israel declares that it is in God alone that they find their salvation. No idol can give us the kind of love, the truth, the beauty, the goodness that God can. In fact, idols don't give at all. They take. Look at what Israel says next in their liturgy of repentance. Verse 24, from our youth, shameful gods have consumed the fruits of our ancestors' labor, their flocks and herds, their sons and daughters. The biggest deception of all that our idols tell us is that they can deliver us from the things that trouble us, that they can give us true peace, and fulfillment, and provision. But when we actually begin to give our lives to them, they turn on us. And instead of saving us, they consume us. Think about some of the idols that we mentioned earlier. You know, much of our media and technology today, you know, we think that these things can save us from, from inefficiency, or boredom, or from isolation. But the more and more that we give ourselves to our smartphones, for example, we actually become more distracted, more easily bored, unable to sit still for 30 seconds without pulling out my phone to see what might have happened, and ultimately more isolated from one another. This is what idols do. But God is not like that. God is a God who gives God is a God who empties himself to the point of giving his own life for us. God's promises are no deception, but the very way, truth, and life. And God gives Israel 
in the church, an incredible promise as we move to our conclusion, move farther down in the passage, go into the beginning of chapter four, God promises, if you Israel will return, then return to me, declares the Lord. If you put your detestable idols out of my sight and no longer go astray, and if in a truthful, just, and righteous way, you swear as surely as the Lord lives, then the nations will invoke blessings by him, and in him, they will boast. If Israel, God says, if we the church will leave our idols and return to our first love, if we put away our idols and give our attention back to God, and if we swear our allegiance to God alone, who lives and who reigns, and if we do this truthfully, not just with our lips, but in our lives, then not only we, but the whole world will know the blessing of being part of the family of God. Then epiphany, the revealing of Christ to the world can happen. The promise that God made to Abraham that all the nations of the world would be blessed through him will become a reality. This promise tells us a crucial truth, that the integrity of our worship is the foundation of our mission. And that the efficacy of our evangelism is directly connected to our love and attention and allegiance to God, the God whom we bear witness to. Because if our life and our love looks no different than that of anybody else, how compelling is our claim that God transforms everything? And if on a corporate level, we tell people, that Christ's kingdom is is eternal, is global, is multi-ethnic, while our life together doesn't reflect that, will people believe it's true? As one theologian says, there is no biblical mission without biblical ethics. The biggest threat to the mission of the church today, in our context at least, is not persecution out there. It is half-hearted, in hypocritical worship, and here. But here's the good news. And for those of you who are here in person or online today who don't call the name of Christ, who don't consider yourselves Christians, this applies to you too. The good news is that no matter how many times we may have failed, no matter how many times we may have given in, to the deception of idols and given our lives to things less than God. No matter how far gone or compromised or broken, you may feel that you are as an individual or that we are as a community. God's loving cry to return, to come home, still remains. The offer and the opportunity to put away our idols and run into the arms of God is one that he will never stop speaking to us. It is one that he will never revoke. God wants us back. God wants to sit and to dine with us and to no longer be our waiter. God wants to marry us to welcome us into God's family, to commission us as God's ambassadors of an eternal kingdom of justice and of truth. And so church, I pray that we would embrace the call to return again and again 
and again, because his mercy is everlasting. Let us pray. God, I pray that today you would break up the hard ground of our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would be poured out upon us as a church, that you would search our hearts, that you would reveal to us the places that we've gone astray. Lord, show us our idols. Show us how our idols are lying to us. Give us the grace to return to you so that both we and the world may know your love, your love that forgives and heals and makes all things new. Through the mighty name of Christ, we pray. Amen.